Welcome to Visionaries, a twice-weekly podcast from Overcome, where we interview some of the most successful and powerful people in gaming and internet culture. I'm Jacob Wolf, your host and an award-winning investigative journalist. Today, we're welcoming on Mike Darlington, the co-founder and CEO of MonsterCat. In 2011, Darlington and his partner founded the Canadian record label while in college. It quickly found its home as a part of the YouTube revolution when the video sharing website began to grow significantly in popularity. And over the past 11 years, through partnerships with the likes of video games Rocket League and Beat Saber, as well as a flat rate subscription program allowing for creators to use their music in their videos, MonsterCats found a lot of success. So we wanted to invite Mike on to talk about that and how gaming's been a part of MonsterCats' success story. Mike Darlington, welcome to Visionaries. I think when most people think gaming music, uh, it's really t- uh, on the internet, especially on YouTube, there are really two companies that to me that really stand out, and it's you all, Monster Cat, and the other being No Copyright Sounds, who um, have done a lot of really good work for people in this in that space as well. Um, so, yeah, let's let's start there, Mike. How did you, or what's the founding story of Monster Cat? It ties into this uh, pretty perfectly into the gaming space. So uh, when I first was uh, kind of coming up in this world, I, I was working in social media and throwing um, events. So through the event space, uh, I got to understand, you know, what went into being an artist, the bookings, uh, you know, every, just like a little little bits and pieces here and there from the people we'd book. And uh, through those parties, I got introduced to some great musicians got to know those musicians pretty well and actually started playing video games with those guys uh, almost every day, whether it was Dota, Minecraft, uh, Call of Duty, try to think what was around back then. Um, yeah, those were, those were kind of like the homies. We'd get together and, and play video games and I would hear a lot of the, you know, their, their frustrations and complaints about, you know, being a musician uh, and me, not as a music guy, but as like a marketing guy, I was like, okay, cool. I think we can solve this. I think we can, we can help or I can help. And, uh, that was kind of the the impetus of of Monster Cat. It's just a bunch of musicians who played video games, wanted to get their content out there, and and needing help. You guys came at a very special time to sort of YouTube as a whole, and we've talked to a couple different people on the show that existed it back then too. And uh, I think we're going to have a few on in the next couple of weeks. So I've been walking down to book who are at this very, you know. Uh, it's not the birth of YouTube, but it feels like it. It is really sort of the popularization of YouTube as a means to consume media. And you all were certainly one of the music arms of that, it, as far as I recall, back in the early 2010s, late aughts. Um, the How would you describe what YouTube culture was back then and where y'all's seat was in it? Yeah, good question. Well, YouTube was definitely the the driving force of organic engagement, organic growth as a as an influencer or as a you know somebody developing as a content creator um it was really raw back then though i think the concept of the algorithm and um you know different means to grow were were really kind of up in the air everyone was trying new things video gaming was just starting to pop off as a as something you could even have on youtube if you guys remember like early youtube you couldn't just like upload video game content it was only specific YouTube MCNs and very specific games that people could even play and, and monetize. Um, so it was kind of, it was fun. It was like, everybody was just trying new things and, and 
these these mass MCNs were were forming and and recruiting and 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 bringing people in. But for us, you know, we we saw like a real opportunity in the sense that as YouTube was growing, uh, especially in the gaming side, we just so often heard the need for for music and the need for music for the content. And without having that music for the content, uh, it kind of left the con- like the videos feeling a bit flat. So. Content ID was was pretty early on on YouTube. I can't remember the year it kind of launched, but that was like a very pivotal moment where people were like, "Okay, this has gone from, you know, a, a slap on the wrist uh, of you should use music that you have the proper rights to, to it being like a there was actually like a, a penalty to to not um, respecting you know music copyrights." So as I said, it was kind of a a wild west. Everyone was trying new things, and and we just were like on on that ride and, and hoping that we could you know solve problems for content creators and our artists at the same time. It's hard for me to remember exactly what the success point was for you all because it felt like it was not necessarily it was was super quick, but I do remember I was listening to Muskrat music before you guys really started doing the compilation. So it dates dates back that far. Um, and obviously the compilations and themselves have been hyper successful. You guys release those tunes throughout the uh, whatever the quarter or whatever it may be and then put them out together as a, as a bundled package. Um, what was that success point? What really made uh, MonsterCat take off in the way that it has? Hmm. I'd say that the, the the packaged concept around a brand that brought artists together that kind of shared common goals that were all up and coming. Um, I think our licensing strategy absolutely played into our, our growth. Uh, we worked at one point with majority of the top content creators, top esports teams, top organizations. And I'm going to lean back into gaming a lot, not just because of like, this is your world, but because it's truthfully was what broke the label in, in a great way. Uh, so I don't think there was any like one moment in that early, earliest stages, but I have to give a lot of credit to, you know, the content creators, the YouTube channels that used to like post and promote music. I got to give a lot of credit to them. They really helped us grow. Um, and then, you know, we've, we had a couple of hits along the way. We had some micro hits from artists like, you know, Pegboard Nerds and Tristam. Uh, and then we had, of course, a mega hit from uh, from Marshmallow. Uh, I think those are a couple of moments that that really just propelled uh, us forward year over year with, with small, healthy growth. We never really had that hockey stick, like the 10,000% in a year type growth. And I think that that sustainability meant that we were able to reinvest year over year and, and create a model for our artists that has actually worked now for 11 years. It, it was never like that one thing that's kind of set it off. What, uh, how would you find these artists? What was your recruitment method back then? It was a mixture. You know, I, I committed early on to that. We would like listen to all demos. I came into the demo box, which was a massive undertaking. I didn't really realize what that meant at the time. Uh, we had a lot of good friends that would recommend musicians and, and artists on the roster actually brought forward a lot of the uh, the uh, the people we signed. Uh, and then last of all, we had we had for a short period of time a community platform where community members could vote on uh, on demos, Yeah, which was a cool concept. It, I don't think it would work in, in the modern era, uh, but at the time it was fun. So, yeah, that's kind of how we found like most of the early roster. As far as I remember, you all were doing individual licensing licensing before you started uh, MonsterCat Gold. Is that is that right? You guys were doing licensing bundles before that. Yeah, we were doing very like direct licenses. So we would work with uh, 
a specific creator, say Captain Sparkles at the time. Uh, we would provide him a catalog of music. We'd, we'd even try to connect him with some of the artists we were working with. And he would you know, pick songs for his content. Um, and then eventually we realized that we could do that, but we could also open up our, our ecosystem to the general creator community uh, through a subscription model called Monster Get Gold. Uh, where people could pay at that time $5 a month and get access to our catalog to be able to use in your YouTube and Twitch content. Um, now, I do want to drive home the point, though, that that was purely a, it allowed you to monetize the content. We have always been completely open to people using our music and their videos, as long as they recognize that they would see a, a content claim on, on the video itself. Uh, so we were never aggressive about like takedowns and DMCAs. It was, it was always meant to be, everybody can use the music, if you want to compensate the artist, you know, you can either do it via uh, the content claim or you can subscribe to the uh, Monster Yet Gold, which is that subscription platform we did. So it was a bit of personal licensing one-to-one -one, and then our paid subscription model that came after it. And how did the economics of that shake out? How were you guys being able to do that while, uh, you know, giving kickbacks to artists, et cetera? Well, I think in the in the examples of like a, a, a YouTube channel that maybe had millions of subscribers, the content ID revenue would have been higher than, you know, the $5 a month we were making from that channel. However, the way we looked at it is that they probably weren't going to continue using the music if they were receiving content claims. So we were pretty happy with five bucks a month and that $5 a month we would uh, break down uh, and, and based upon the rev shares we have the artists, they would receive their, their split of that $5 a month. Uh, and also depending on the usage of the music within our ecosystem. Uh, if some if an art uh, a channel was coming in and and exclusively using one artist, then they would they would receive that uh, that share kind of the uh, of the split. Um, yeah, so it it was a it was an equitable equitable way to make sure our artists got paid, but also I think we did it in a way that hopefully was seen as fair for the content creator community as well. One thing I want to ask about, because you mentioned in an earlier answer, is MCNs. It's something yeah. that came up on this show uh, a few weeks ago, talking to another creator. Can you walk through sort of the people unfamiliar with what the MCN uh, culture, or what MCN stands for and what it was back then in the early stages of YouTube? Yeah, I, I, I can speak to the early stages. I don't, I don't know what it is today. But in the early stages, an MCN basically would find channels that had potential success would offer them revenue share deals to provide the ability for that channel to put advertisements on their content or they would offer like paid high-end uh, custom ads on their content uh, and they would do rev shares on that content so at that time it was kind of a uh, once this technology kind of came out through youtube that they could roll up channels into an MCN, it was kind of a, a race, a rat race of everyone trying to like recruit all the best channels and offer the best deals. And one person would, you know, undercut another person. Uh, but the one consistent there was while they were all fighting for the channels, we knew they all needed music. So they kind of had their, their games and their, and their fights. And we would just sit there in the back being like, you guys need music. We got you. <laughs> uh, so yeah, it, it evolved pretty rapidly from, uh, you know, when that MCN model first, kind of kind of arose to eventually you know i think any channel now can monetize their content on youtube after a certain point um, which is definitely a more equitable way of doing it were you all ever an mcn yourself we were at one point like a uh i don't even know like a sub network i guess you could say like we were part of an mcn and then we would like roll up channels that are music channels specifically within the mcn 
And then that concept, uh, we ended up spinning out into its own company, which ended up becoming the EDM district. Uh, so that company was an MCN and, and managed advertisements and channels. Um, and, I, and I sold that uh, many, many years ago at this point. Um, so I haven't been in the MCN game for a long time. It's a name I haven't heard in a long time. Right. EDM district. Yeah. 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 I think they're, they're still cruising, though. They still got their channels. They're still, you know, building them. They're still creating campaigns like they're they're around. Yeah, I think the websites are probably more traffic than the the YouTube MCN at this point, but um, or at least they were at one point. Um, okay, so let's uh, talk about sort of gaming as a as a whole because you know you all were sort of parallel to it in so many different ways and a part of its growth. Why do you think gaming has been such a successful vertical of content on YouTube? it's just it's a it's a it's a, a good con uh, category on youtube and twitch and, and all these platforms just because there's so much it's such a way to experience a game and see it from through the eyes of a creator and enjoy their personality that i don't know i, I found that it just clicked really well in the gaming space it, it's a massive industry of course there's millions and millions of people that play video games so i don't know it, 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 there's kind of a secret sauce to like entertainment and watching people play games, especially people who are really good at the game, that just seemed to work really well. And and in the early days of YouTube, I'm not sure. It, it just it just worked. And they figured out how to monetize it really quickly and how to work with the different publishers and developers really early on that just felt organic. So I don't know. It, it just made sense to me. And I'm sure that uh, a lot of the reasons why gaming worked on YouTube uh, 11 years ago is probably the reason it still works on YouTube and Twitch today. Yeah, it's that interactive content, et cetera. Um, what, what did you guys dabble in in any of that in terms of, you know, I think most people remember Monster Cat waveform videos with maybe album art, maybe not, and various different colors. Like that's the sort of traditional Monster Cat video. Did you guys dabble in doing more interactive media in, in any type of way on YouTube? We definitely tried different things, different pieces of content. I think the reality was video content is just so expensive and the music industry is an industry of, of fractions of pennies. Uh, and I don't think we ever figured out to this day how to create really high engaging content that made sense from uh, the economic standpoint. Even to this point, I, I still don't think we have the answer to it. I think we're, we're making better strides with like short form content um, and, you know, clippable content, but yeah, long form YouTube content is, is really challenging. And I, I applaud people who've been able to build brands and channels around that original content it's, it's really challenging why do you think dance music in particular has the connection to gaming that it does and in the way that it does well uh it's there's there's so many sounds that you find in dance music that originated from the gaming industry from uh, old synths it, there's just something in the back of your brain that it, has that nostalgia factor of uh, of sound design that you f you find in the in the dance music industry? Um, I think also from like a content creator standpoint, 
it, it really uh, it really made its way through the ecosystem because of the fact that the licensing frameworks are much simpler in dance music than they are in in other forms of other genres. Like where there's a lot more writers and and publishers and and creators involved in a song. Dance music often you have you know one person who produced it. They maybe worked with a vocalist who often is also the writer. So it just made it easier to to license uh, and make available in the in the YouTube space um, and the Twitch space. But yeah, no, I this again, it's it's one of those those magic things that just kind of seem to work together. Is is gaming electronic music? There's it, there's that meme about uh yeah it it just they go so hand in hand. Like I you I can't really picture, especially like the Minecraft era. I can't picture the content without hearing like electronic music jingles in the background of the content. It just worked so well. Yeah, it's I think especially as it pertains to like FPS games, et cetera, too. Something about the BPM and like the excitedness of, of a lot of d- different dance music, right? Like the best Call of Duty montages are set to drum and bass, right? Like it's it's almost this like, you know, really kind of fun. It's, it, they match each other in their pace and their uh, tempo. So racing yeah. games as well. All the best racing games have like drum and bass that are, that are uh, in the radio systems. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so... I want to go back to a little bit more about you guys and the success that you all found. I know that you were talking, you made kind of the broad stroke that Marshmallow was like this huge inflection point. You guys were growing pretty significantly before then um, and were on a pretty, uh, felt like a pretty steep incline, very separated from the last, a lot of the dance music industry, as I remember. Um, What was the first thing that you remember that was like, oh, wow, our concept is legitimate? Yeah, I've had this question come up over the years, and and it uh, I, the answers always stay the same. There was a moment where artists started like writing me on fa- on Facebook chat back then, being like, "Just so you know, you know, thank you one, but two, I'm I'm taking this music thing really seriously. I just like quit my job," and that was kind of like that li- that that moment where I'm like, "Oh shit, this is no longer like just us messing around on the internet. Like people are putting their livelihood in our hands." Um, to take this serious uh, so that was definitely that that moment at least that i realized that there was a uh, something pretty magical that happened um from a business standpoint though there was just so many of these little like check boxes over the years i don't think that, again i don't have one that that really was like everything has changed because of this do you remember songs that were particularly impactful to to that and you know the brand and uh, the I guess pub- publicity around what you all were doing that that really took off? Oh yeah, yeah. There was there was definitely like early tracks from Pegboard Nerds and early tracks from Tristam and 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 uh, and Breakin that like really exploded early on. We're talking like tens of millions of plays uh, in the YouTube community. And they still, to this day, I like end up on a video. I'm like, wow, there's this, 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 this video is using a, a song from 2013. <laughs> like that's pretty amazing. Uh, so yeah, th- those are kind of some of the artists I, I, I want to give a lot of credit to. Um, I'd say that they were like the, the big artists of monster cat for a very long time. Yeah. I still, uh, stumble into flight sometimes. Right. As well too. Flight. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, so the, you, you, I want to talk about the creator economics for a musician because mm-hmm. it is still something we haven't figured out. A lot of people campaigning, you know, I think a lot of people were very resistant to Spotify and music streaming when it first came out because I think rightfully so they understood what uh, the value proposition was going to be for musicians. It doesn't pay well, um, but it is 
now it is the only way most people consume music nobody's buying off of itunes anymore uh, in the way that they used to um and the other part of that too is that uh we've seen musicians try to find other avenues of revenue whether it be you know streaming themselves on tiktok or twitch and trying to figure out how to monetize that um to doing things completely unrelated to music but being able to kind of use their music audience and music press to drive engagement to that. And that's something we've talked about in the show is finding those alternative avenues. So let's start at the very beginning of that. You all did start off before streaming's popularity. What, what did economics look like then? What was the trickle down from the buy to you guys, to the artist? And then how did that change with streaming uh, becoming a part of the economy? Well, maybe because I'm not much of like a maths guy. We we kind of stuck to a model from day one that we still to this day still use. It's still a fifty fifty net license. So if a, you know if a dollar comes in, whatever costs are taken off the top, and the artists are, are paid their share. Um, actually, we in a lot of ways we share uh, the costs between uh, like the monster guy will take on some of the costs, ours will take on some of the costs. So that kind of concept of uh, an equitable relationship with the artists uh, has really been the consistent model from day one so whether it was a, a compilation where if, if if there are 10 artists on an album and there are 10 songs you divide the ten dollars or whatever the amount after the, the fee uh off the off the store you divide that out by the artists on it and then they got their 50 percent, and monster got our got our 50 percent. so th- that concept whether it was an album or a single or a um, compilation or even now with like the streaming revenue it just works its way that anytime we make money as a label, the artist make, makes money. Um, now, definitely don't get me wrong. It, it's more challenging now, I'd say, putting millions of impressions on content to generate, you know, thousands of dollars is, a, is in my opinion, harder than selling 2,000 singles, you know, um, or whatever the math works out to being. It, the game has changed. But at the end of the day, a, a record label really only has the responsibility of marketing your artists and getting them paid. If you, if you don't do one of those two things, you're not a record label. Uh, some yeah. are better than it than others, but that's that's what it comes down to. What is the value of an an impression? I as much as you're like able to think through and, and like know off the top of your head, an impression on Spotify versus an impression on YouTube. What is what does that look like? We, we deal in the thousands of impressions and then the thousands of impressions work its way to be a couple bucks type of thing. Plus or minus an extra couple bucks in each direction. Uh, I don't have the exact numbers in front of me, but know that it is a, it is a tough game out there for musicians. They're, they're really pushed into the live and apparel and, and new economic models because it's so difficult to, to make it as a, you know, just a stay at home producer. Uh, and I think it's only, it's only gotten more challenging. Over the years, I think right now, actually, the music industry is the hardest I've seen it it's ever been to be a musician. Why do you say that? Well, there's so many things that kind of all went the wrong direction all at once. You know, COVID hit, you lost all your shows. Uh, COVID hit, a lot of the uh, sync revenue and, and deals fell through. Uh, now that the shows have reopened, you get sick on the road, you end up losing half the tour or you're. TM gets sick or your you know Sage production team or whatever gets it's just that fell through uh, gas flight prices are now so expensive uh, most music platforms have moved to very like algorithmic discovery which is more challenging same with socials guys if you think, I'm sure you've seen how difficult it is to grow on Twitter and Instagram now 
Uh, I just can't think of one thing where I could say it's easier to be a musician now than it was 10 years ago. I think it's truly harder in every way. And so the one thing I want to ask about uh, that is how do you, how does that impact the way that you're doing marketing? It means that you got to really think outside the box and create new forms of distribution, new ways for the content to be discovered. You can't use the same techniques uh, because it's getting more expensive to use those old techniques. Uh, and, it's, and it's just not working as well as it once did. So it's a constant game of like, how can we be better? How can we get our artists out there in, in, in new ways? How can we do custom campaigns? And how do we look at new technology and new industries as they start to develop? Uh, and how do we look at new, you know, ways that people listen to music now and, and, and find a way to place ourselves? Uh, so yeah, it's just, it's a rat race of, of, of evolution. And the, the labels and the artists that don't evolve at the times, they, they kind of, they don't exist anymore. Social media certainly changed the way the music profession works. Um, and you all were, to me, one of the first people to try to figure it out. Maybe not always correctly, but, but, but definitely, you know, smash hit sometimes. It felt like you guys sort of hit it out of the park. Um, was that native to your team? Like, did you all have a good understanding of social media having grown up with it in some instances? Or was it something that you kind of figured out with time? Definitely with time. You know, none of us studied it. You know, I did work as a, like a social media manager, digital marketing type guy early on in my career. Uh, but uh, the people who are really great at building communities are ones that lived and breathed being communities, like on the internet. You, if you're from the internet and you were raised by the internet to some regard, uh, you, it kind of clicks for you. And that, that's why you're prepared for this change in evolution, because you're so used to that change in evolution. Like Jacob, you've seen the come and go of, of everything. <laughs> and I'm sure this is yeah. why like these things you're able to evolve at the times. And I'm not asking you, are you doing the same thing you were doing, you know, eight years ago? So it, it it's I think that what's challenging now is that as my time and my senior leadership's time has changed and we have to focus on different areas, it, it's actually pulled us further and further away from being a part of that like ground level community building that uh, not only just in the company, but with our own time in our own places, that there are going to be the next generation of people come up within crazy community development ways, crazy social digital marketing ways that I hope I can recruit those people onto our team so that they can bring it in-house. Uh, but that's it's definitely a challenge to, you know, not become a boomer, you know, really, really understand how, how this is all evolving. And how do you use that to parlay into building sustainable business? I saw somebody in the space earlier. I don't think he's here anymore, but Cody Allard, who used to be my boss uh, once upon a time, uh, now works for you. Um, Cody's a great person. Um, but how, you know, now you have a team, you have responsibilities that they have to pay their bills and you got to make sure you pay yours and get including their payroll. How do you, how did you build that into a sustainable business given all the economic issues you've described and making sure that it's not just, one hit wonder marketing here, one hit wonder marketing there, but consistency from the artist, from the label, et cetera. Well, I think it comes down to the model. A model, like statistics are interesting. They're, they're a lot more, like I guess that's the beauty of statistics. They're, for people who really understand it, they're quite predictable. You can, you can map things out, especially with the streaming revenue in the music industry. You kind of can see the direction things are moving in and you can make small adjustments to kind of continue that growth or to, to avoid, you know, catastrophe. So 
I think small changes and and decision making and be just monitoring really well, having a great finance team that really kept us abreast to any changes going on has just allowed us to make decisions that were sustainable where we considered our team. You know, we're 72, I think, maybe even more than that now. I saw a couple of emails go out of new staff members, uh, people, and we've grown, you know, 10 to 20 staff year over year in the last, you know, set of years. And uh, it was all done through budgeting, through planning, and through really looking at the numbers. So it is possible to run a sustainable business that, uh, you know, grows over time in music. It's possible. I think the mistake you can make, though, is you get caught up in this hype of, a, you know, a hit or, a, you know, or a trend. And if you don't plan for that trend or that hit to, to kind of dissipate over time, then that's where you find yourself in trouble. Uh, so you really got to plot it out and, and make the right decisions. The next part of that I want to talk about is the uh, managing the personalities. One thing that gaming and, and music have in common, in my opinion, is that like it's they both have a lot of creative people in them, all art too. Um, and gaming content in itself is pretty much art. And the one thing I've noticed having uh, done work in both is that there are really big personalities and not necessarily their interest in what they're most passionate about aligns with the most economic or business sense. Maybe they want to do something that doesn't make sense from a business perspective. How have you managed that and sort of guided these like very young, passionate, creative people into building those sustainable careers for themselves, which ultimately, you know, impacts what you're doing too? Yeah. So fortunately, our business model uh, means that we do limited term licenses and we don't do like multi-year, multi-album deals. So artists have a lot of flexibility with MonsterCat. They can they can work with us for a couple of years or a couple of tracks and then decide it's not it's not the right fit. And the, and the same goes for MonsterCat. We can work with an artist to be like, yeah, it's not working. Uh, the beauty of that, though, is it means that artists have all the room in the world to be creative, all the room in the world to work with the music they want to work with and the marketing campaigns they want to work with. Now. We don't always agree, and sometimes we we come together, we communicate, and we find a, a you know middle ground. And sometimes we don't, and that's when we part ways. Uh, the key, at least for us, is just being very clear and transparent about like what we're willing to do and not willing to do, and uh, you know holding to our guns and, and to our belief structures. So, I think it's it's led to uh, some roster evolution over the years for sure, uh, but I think overall it's it's allowed artists to be creative and do what they want to do. And how do you compete for talent with uh, the massive labels, right? And Interscope, Atlantic, et cetera. These people who, um, you know, they're they're not taking risk on kind of the smaller people that you all did early on, but certainly kind of the the big hitters that you guys have had re- released. How are you competing with those people? Well, keep in mind that a lot of our like more known genres we work in are not signed by the major labels at all. They don't really mess with bass music or electro or, you know, some of the more like internet. Uh, loving sure. genres, drum, drum and bass, even to the extent there's only a couple of labels that work with it. But, you know, we found a lot of uh, opportunity, especially in the gaming industry, through licensing uh, into games and the major publishers and whatnot, because we are able to move a lot faster than some of the competitors. Uh, we have the rights frameworks already in place to be able to, to work with these different games. So I think that's been a major like opportunity point as being an indie. I also think our, our model around YouTube and Twitch can only work because we're an indie. I don't think it could work in a major ecosystem. Uh, so we're just a different option for a different type of artists. And, and we've had, you know, provable success uh, in, in developing and breaking talent. 
So there's there's time and place. I I don't see the majors as like these these terrible competitors to us that I lose sleep over. Uh, both of us can coexist at the exact same time, no problem. In terms of the artists being able to give back to you, because there have been artists that have stuck so much of their career with you all. I think mm-hmm. of when I say that, I think of Pegboard Nerds. Uh, I think of Tristam once upon once upon a time. Obviously, I think he's on his own now. If, yeah, I, he's, if I remember he's, correctly, he's, he's uh, fully independent at this point, as far as I That's know. That's what I thought. Yeah, um, I think of Muzz, and I yeah. think some of, of some of these other people who have been there not since the very beginning, but close to it. Pretty much. Um, yeah, yeah. And now they're like either they still release with you all, or you know they promote, share other Monster Cat artists, etc. Things that they like. Um, what is how? those relationships what has been the most beneficial thing for you all other than obviously building you know true human relationships what has been the most beneficial thing for you all building those relationships and that loyalty both ways i think you know it it, it kind of for like that relationship that that communication caused both sides to evolve over time um I think for the it's pushed the artists to to develop and grow their careers in ways where they've taken it more seriously and they've be, they've become more of a professional. And for for us, for Monster Cat, I think it reminds us of a lot of humility. It reminds us that there are there are people behind the computer screen, even if you don't get to spend time with everybody in person. Like that's that's a real human that you're dealing with. Mm-hmm. Um, it's good to be reminded of that, and I think the people you've worked with for eleven years can very much remind you of that. You know, we've been through a lot together, so it's it's definitely there's it's times where it's challenging because you want to see the people who've been around for the longest. You want to see them, you know, win the most. Uh, but it is it's it's a tough game. You know, music is not easy. Sometimes people have uh, have something that just works and and they and they take off. Um, but we have a lot of love for the the artists that we've worked with over the years, especially from the early days. And I know that the team does consider that in like any of the signing processes like you know are they og if they're og if they're their community members like how do we find a way to keep them involved i want to talk a little bit more about gold we touched on it earlier yeah. and, and what it is i couldn't find couldn't find exactly when it launched i do remember that it was pretty early on but i like I, there wasn't a press release for me to peg it to the easy date do you remember when gold launched specifically oh man I don't remember like the year. I, uh, I think it has to be like 2013, 2014 is when one of those, if I'm, if I'm right, it's pretty early. It went through so many eras of iteration. Cause I, I don't even remember if it was first launched as, cause I remember we had like a community platform and then I feel like it got merged with the licensing platform. That's probably why my memory is so blurry on, on how it went down. So unfortunately, no, I don't remember. Maybe maybe one of my team members can remind me in the in chat, like when Gold launched. Yeah, I'm I'm uh I'm curious because I I think it was I'm just trying to remember what I was doing when it when it was around. I think it definitely came out in that that era though of like 2013, 2014. So the reason I would talk about it is because there are definitely competing services to it now. Mm-hmm. Um, we we use at Overcome, we use Epidemic Sound for a lot of different things because there. are you know, uh, they have a little bit of a, and this will lead into another question later. They have like a really wide amount of music, like yeah. from a bunch of different genres. I'm working on a uh, video trailer right now that uses kind of like more 
creepy vocal music Heck that comes yeah. off Epidemic. Um, and so, uh, did you? Were there others that you were looking at back then when you launched Gold that were doing the similar thing, or re- did you kind of feel like you were pioneering this kind of subscription software license? Oh, we were definitely pioneering, but even to this day, I think the area we pioneered was that these were all like named artists that were on Spotify and Apple Music and iTunes and Amazon. Like they weren't in a lot of cases, these there's like I don't even know if they're real artists that are behind some of the songs on these licensing platforms. Like they're they're almost like these profiles that have been created. because uh, I can't find this the artists behind the music anywhere. And I look for them. I'm curious. I want to, especially there's some great songs. I want to find out who made it. So we, we definitely have kept to like, we want our, our, our offering to be, you know, artists that you can find on Twitter. You love the song, go follow the guy on Twitter, shoot them a message, like build a relationship with the artist. Like that, that was kind of the area that we kind of kept to, but no, at that time, I think some of these platforms might've been bubbling up, but in most cases it was like studio music, uh, or you know bedroom music uh it wasn't it wasn't from like touring musicians type of thing got it yeah in terms of the price point you know it was originally five dollars i believe it is now 10 if i'm correct um how have you determined that uh and what it should be what is fair to you all um and makes economic sense ah i think that's a challenging question because there's a difference between what I think is fair and which is great for the artists and what the market can and can handle type of thing. Um, and we have to remember there's economics to any decision. Uh, but I think for, I think we're at like for the, the, the value you get now from gold, I think is, uh, I think we're at what seven, yeah, seven fifty a month. The value might be too high for seven fifty a month. Like we're providing a lot of value for the, for the music and the roster we work with at what I consider to be a very, affordable price uh, and fair price it probably should be higher to be honest but i don't think the market can sustain a substantially higher price point nor and how I are, think right, right now i think it's a, just a terrible time to try to charge more of the subscription like every everybody is hurting i think about this a lot this is it's a very challenging time to be an artist but even just to be a fan it's a challenging time right now or a creator so it might, it's probably not the time to try to raise prices on subscriptions <laughs> In terms of tracking all the content it goes to, obviously you were talking about content ID earlier. It does a pretty good job at identifying where certain things are used and and putting it in front of the appropriate rights holder. Um, how difficult has it been to manage that? Has it gotten easier with time and and being making sure that you're getting sort of the appropriate due and and verifying that they're a gold subscriber or not? Yeah, we've tried to build up the technology the best we can like our you know our monitoring and bot technology but it's 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 a constant evolving process Uh, i don't think anybody's nailed this solution yet for music rights tracking monetization Um, but we all use the the best tools we have available i want to go back to a little bit of marketing speak because i want to i want you to talk about some of the things that you have done that are experimental, but maybe some of the things that other musicians have done. I think a lot about you all have had involvement in Fortnite, but so have many other artists, right? Travis Scott did that massive concert in Fortnite during the pandemic. Um, Marshmallow has done stuff with Fortnite over time. Obviously someone you all have worked with before. Um, What do you think about what's going on out there and what has kind of inspired you and your team um, from sort of the experimental music marketing world? 
yeah, well, I think we're always dabbling. We're always looking into new ways to connect with fans um, and get the music out there. We've looked into everything from AR, VR, live streaming, uh, uh, avatars, 3D models, uh, projection mapping, uh, Web3, uh, proof of attendance tokens, uh, fan engagement tech tokens. Like we've looked into everything at one point or another. I, I think that at the end of the day, you have to be open-minded to technology um, because one, it comes hard and it comes really fast. Like when it comes in, it, it, it comes like, you know, you're like shocked how quickly something can blow up and that you, you should have been prepared for it. Uh, but also I think, you know, we need to do this because it's just not a great ecosystem to be a musician right now. It's not a great time to monetize your work as a musician and that we want to bring in other opportunities to to help with that that process and again fortunately our model i can always point back to it because i'm like every time monster cat wins our artist wins so there's no like greedy record label tries to make more money mm. it's like greedy record label made more money and artists made more money too so it, it, it's you know we're, we're trying to find something that's equitable for the fan and for the artist uh with this, this emerging technology as it comes out so i don't think i have like one thing i'm going to point to uh clearly like i've got a hexagon display photo clearly i'm excited about web3 um, but I still don't think uh, we have, you know, all the answers yet for what that's going to look like. Um, but there are smart people trying to figure it out. I've been a big critic of Web3, is definitely. And I think that, you know, it seems like there's a divide. There are people that are like unabashedly criticize everything Web3 mm -hmm. and crypto without like any sort of uh, some have dived deep but i think a lot of people burned by rug pulls etc and then there are the people that are uh very aggressively pro web3 and like wanted to take over everything there are very few people in the middle i try to be as a journalist very fair and in that middle ground there are interesting projects in web3 there are really awful projects in web3 and 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 uh it may, none of them may work but at least you know let people try and cover it as as you got to cover it um, you know, you all do have a Web3 vertical and I actually, I have thought a lot and I think I've even said this, uh, and speaking in di different things that music is actually one of the most interesting use cases for Web3 in general. Something I think about, um, is the Wu-Tang album that Martin Screlly purchased all those years ago. And it was the sole sim you know, single collector's edition of a unreleased Wu-Tang Clan album. And I think about what if that was had some sort of digital protection around it and could be distributed in a way that was trackable and not able to be pirated. Um, what do you think about kind of uh, other than your tweets, Web3 and music and its current use case and potential use case? OK, well, you've opened up the uh, the can of worms we're, we're in now. Sure. Hmm. How do I want to get into this? Well, when, I'm going to start with the Martin Scrawley thing because it's kind of interesting. So that, if people don't know, the Wu-Tang album was a one-of-one one physical album that was sold. Martin Shkreli bought it. When he was in jail, a group of Web3 people came together and then purchased that album off of him, or I guess from the DOJ or whoever had the album. Uh, then they, they took that album and they fractionalized it to create a community of people who had a fractional, I guess, ownership or vested interest in that album. Uh, and I thought that was all very interesting. Um, I'm not an advocate for gating music, though. I'm going to put that out there in Web3. I know that that's a common thing. People are like, oh, it'd be great to be able to have, like, you know, the ownership of a song and it's mine. And, like, you know, but that's not really the blockchain. You know, blockchain, 
if if it's on the blockchain in any way, you can anyone can consume it. So I I'm an advocate for looking at Web three as a different layer of uh, engagement with a fan, more so than I look at it as a replacement means of of listening to to music. I I don't think you can beat ten dollars a month for every song that ever existed. That is too good of a deal. It's the best deal that's ever existed. Um, so I look at it as like, how do we use this technology? Which there are some really novel ways you can you can engage with communities that you just can't do on a you know in the Web two ecosystem. Uh, whether it's token gated content, apparel, early listenership, whether it's uh, even using free models where you can like give these proof of attendance tokens, which are kind of like an, a badge. Um, to kind of identify who are the people in your community that have contributed to your success. I think there's a lot of models that can uh, equitably create a relationship between fan and artist that doesn't take away from how music is currently consumed. And that's more what I'm looking into each day is not how do I take away from people's ability to engage on Spotify or whatever, but how, you know, we can better connect fan and artist, identify the, who those fans are, uh, and create original content for them in in a new in a new ma- uh, industry that's evolving right now. I know there's a lot of words there, but hopefully it covered what you were looking for. <laughs> and I'd love to hear your criticisms, by the way. Uh, I'm not looking to have a debate, but I, I'm curious. Like, you know, I think right before we got audio, we were talking about how there's bad people in Web two. And I'm like, yeah, there's bad people in Web three as well. Um, oh, I, absolutely. <laughs> I I think that when you're dealing with an industry as nascent as crypto, there are I think the differentiation is the hard part because it is so it's a technology that is relatively unexplored at its peak, right? Even with all the projects we've seen over the past three, four years, uh, there are certainly a lot of people who want to take advantage of that. Mm-hmm. And I think that my biggest criticism lies around the community and less the technology, the technology blockchain in itself could be really interesting if used in banking and other things, ways that are like every single day lives, right? Imagine being able to, instead of doing an international wire transfer with Swift codes and being able to play around, you know, have to wait for three or four days for it to show up. Imagine that being instantaneous in the way that it is in PayPal and in the way that it is in Venmo, et cetera, but secured and backed. Um, And I think that is really, really appealing. I think the community though is pretty awful i don't think there's another way to describe that like a lot of the community the most vocal people in web3 are probably the reason for most of the criticism um and i think it's totally valid in that perspective because i think a lot of those people are really terrible people and and uh, want to you know feel exclusive and in this part of this club and kind of punch down at others and i think that that's what scares me and then also just Celebrity endorsements always have a bunch of problems, but we've seen a lot of rug pulls involving some really powerful people and the misuse of influence, and that also mm-hmm. really bothers me too. Oh, I, so. I'm a fully advocate for and supportive of the. Uh, unfortunately, majority of the times there's been a celebrity involved in a project, it's it seems to flop. Like it's almost like a a check mark of like don't go near this if it had a major celebrity pushing it. Uh, so I agree with you. I did put in our chat. I know the community can't see. Actually, I'll just say it out loud. There is a list here, which I truly back. 90 plus percent of the people listed on this list as good people that are innovators that mean well that aren't looking to rug pull you this list i think is one of the best ones if you're looking for people to follow it's the nft now nft 100 list uh the guy who kind of developed the the strategy behind this was a senior editor at billboard he dealt with you know 
listen in the past when in his in his prior career. And I think they did a, a really good job based on community uh, votes and involvement to to really identify who are the who are the good ones in Web3. Because I absolutely agree with you, Jacob. The loudest people generally aren't contributing that much. And they, they seem to get a lot of followers because they can do hot takes on Twitter. Uh, hot takes don't actually build technology, though, guys. <laughs> it doesn't move the needle. Yeah. But these people here, highly recommend this list. They are building. They are making the, the space better. And I think that, uh, you know, in, in two, three, four years from now, we'll look back at it and be like, the whole industry was made by some of the people listed here. Yeah, it, it's tough. It You know, Web2 is... There was a, a certain level of sophistication. Social media didn't exist in the same way that it does now, et cetera. There's a lot of different things that are different in this kind of build of the new internet, as some people would dub it, which may be a little bit too broad of a stroke. Um, but nonetheless, I, I think that uh, it, this is easier to get into and also a little bit more dangerous. And I think that's the it's the same thing with retail uh, investment trading, to be honest. Like it's there are issues in a lot, a lot of both of those things, and uh, it can be really, really dangerous for a lot of people. I think education is the one part that is uh, missing from the Web3 industry. Um, and to her credit, although I think most people in crypto hate her, I think Molly White is actually a really important watchdog, too. So I, I do want to sh- shout her out for the, what, what she does um, in the blog that she writes. So, okay, um, I want to talk about piracy. Uh, mm. before we we get in here and how you think that that what you were just describing blockchain um can can it help piracy or rather can it prevent piracy uh, and and make the issue better um or is it so you know kind of a a net negative or not even just net anything just net flat hot take i don't even know if we should be talking about piracy it's like there's that time from an engineering perspective could be put into creating a better user experience and user interface for people to engage with the content so that they don't even have to consider piracy as an option. Uh, piracy is, is, is a means to an end. It's either it was the easiest way to get the content or it, it was people that could have never acquired the content to begin with. So I, I try not to lose sleep over piracy. It's, it's existed since I first started. Uh, yeah, I heard about the Napster era. I was only just catching the end of it from music. Now, I know technology, it's, it's a lot more probably money that's on the line and why it's such a more drastic issue. But I still think at the end of the day, if if you create an easy way for users to engage with content uh, that they believe is, is fair, uh, piracy stops becoming a, as big of a driving force of decision making. Have you seen a reduction in piracy because of uh, streaming services and music? Oh, I, I don't even think I have that number, but let's take it from a gut check perspective. Uh, absolutely. Uh, I, the last time I heard somebody even talk about downloading a song, like that wasn't them da- like, you know, clicking save where it downloads to your device. Uh, I, I don't re- I, I truly cannot remember the last time I heard about this. Maybe, maybe for some like DJs because they need the live, you know, the tracks to play live. But even then, artists that are getting booked for shows are generally buying their music uh, and using platforms like Beatport to, to do that. So, I don't know. It, it, I honestly haven't had a conversation about piracy in like five years at this point. Yeah, I think it still exists in other uh, other avenues of entertainment and creative work, but certainly it feels like it is reduced in music. I think you're right. But uh, interesting use case for me of, of uh, it's something I'm interested in around Web3 in particular in the way that it could be used. Uh, movies are still highly pirated. 
even people, with movie streaming. People will still find a way to pirate even with blockchain technology. Like there's, yeah. there's especially smart contracts. There's always a way to to get around them in some capacity or hack them. Like people are people are smart. Uh, you got to keep evolving with the times. I, I want to say that this is the golden egg magic bullet to any problem that ever exists is blockchain technology. But I just know that that's not the case. If anything, we we're creating more problems sometimes with blockchain technology than we're solving. Uh, so there's a time and a place where it makes a lot of sense. And the time and a place where we're like, let's throw the word chain at the end of a company. And, and suddenly, like, magically, it'll solve all all the world issues. Yeah, it's the uh, how much venture capital do you need to raise? Throw blockchain in your deck and let it let it pour in. In some ways, yeah, probably. Yeah. All right. So I want to take the audience questions here in a second, but yeah, I have one last one for you um, from me. Uh, and I asked Marcus Bromander from Intersloth this as well. You guys have remained independent. Um, and I want to ask you, have you received acquisition offers? And if you turn them down, why? trying to think of like what i should and could say uh <laughs> the answer is yes and why it just didn't make sense it, it 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 would be a net negative around across the board the only thing that would have changed is like i could get a bigger house uh there will i'm sure there will one day be a partner that makes sense that we want to be a part of that makes sense for our artists, for our staff, for myself, for my partner, for everybody. I'm sh I know that that day will come, uh, but it hasn't yet. So entrepreneurs always want to have an exit. Like that's that's part of the entrepreneurship game is the exit. So I'm, I'm not going to say it's never going to happen. Uh, but no, we've the right the right opportunity, the right person, the right organization just hasn't been there. So. So the first one comes from uh, a friend of one of my staffs who is not a Twitter user. Um, and this is uh, back to the discussion we were just having. Do you think that there's a sustainable system for music distribution with NFTs that allows musicians to both control their music's use and earn more than on modern platforms? So it's an earning question, which we didn't really cover. I any artist I speak to, I tell them it's not an and or or, or sorry, it's not an or it's an and conversation. Um, you should still think about how to develop your brand and work with record labels and work with marketers on Web2 and on DSPs. You should, everything we've learned, continue doing that. Look to Web3 to be a, a way to either identify super fans, to reward super fans, to create unique content for those fans, to create unique experiences for those fans that a lot of the times have costs to it. Um, and that NFTs allow you to create a revenue stream and also cover some of the costs to create those experiences. So no, it, it, it's, it, it's yeah, to me, sorry, it's entirely an and discussion. Uh, Web 2 and Web 3 are not, like, I actually don't like the branding. The branding Web 2, Web 3 sucks because it sounds like Web 3 is something better than Web 2. It's not. It's like a, it's just a different way to look at things and they can both coexist at the same time. Um, so we probably should like rethink how we, the, the branding of NFTs and the branding of Web3 sucks. I'm going to put it out there. <laughs> um, I'm not in charge of branding for the whole ecosystem though. Hopefully other that covered question. the question. Yeah, for sure. Um, the other question from Sammy on my staff is, has Monster Cat ever considered expanding the catalog with other genres? Oh yeah. Uh, we've definitely had the discussions. Um, I think... You know, we, we ended up deciding that dance music is our home and we will probably always be, at least in some form, electronic. Uh, but we've definitely had the conversations. I think that 
the area I've started to like think about is almost from like a mentorship or, or uh, like, how do I help the, the next generation of labels or even the, the, the generation of labels that currently exist that are struggling? Uh, how do I, how do I help them or how do I work with them? Which would then in my way, I guess, be able to be multi-genre or work with other genres. Um, Cause I would love to have done some work in hip hop or rock or techno or jazz. Like I would love to have had some exposure to that. I just never had the chance. Do you think that staying in that lane was part of the reason that you all were so successful is that the audience kind of the consistency of the content, you know, they may not be, there may be some people that aren't DMB fans or there may be people that aren't electro fans, but you know, they, you staying sort of in dance music helped your growth. I'm sure in some ways, like, you know, is there any like YouTube channel or Twitch streamer you can think of that can go and well, occasionally, sometimes people are that good that they can do their cooking, their cooking stream, and then they can do their Call of Duty content that they can play Minecraft. That some people can do that. Uh, we found that um, even even what I just described, though, you know, how do I answer this? We were multi-genre within electronic music, so there was still like a place that you knew what you were kind of getting, but there was still flexibility in the content. The other form of that would have been we're all electronic music and we only do dubstep. I think we would have struggled if that was the case. We only did one single genre. Uh, so we've been open-minded to an extent. As I said, I, I can't work on those other fields really with Monster Cat, but maybe we'll find a way one day. Okay. Well, if Linville Laird would like to answer or request speaker again, I will promote. Oh, uh, Linville's loud. Uh, <laughs> Mike's stamp of approval. Linville, if you're still listening, I see you in the space. Um, Happy to have you ask your question. I, I was reading through some of the interviews that Donaldson has done for Billboard, for Forbes, and others of as well. But I'm curious to ask: Do you see Muscat now as like kind of like a major label for any smaller artists to join in, or do you still believe in like what you said before, which is that if we're able to bring some brand new talent in from a major label? That makes me happy. I'm just curious to, to like hear more elaboration on that. You know, we work with art. Like it's I, well, first we got to start with the definition of what major label means, because to some people, major label only means, you know, Sony, Warner, Universal. Like that's that's the definition of their mind of what a major label. Is. Some people major look at a major as uh, somebody who is like industry leading or genre leading, um, and that makes a difference. For Monster Cat, the way we look at it, we want to have artists that we can develop at any given time. Uh, and those are generally artists that are, you know, on the come up. We also want to make sure we work with uh, credible industry leading artists, because I think that they bring opportunity to the ecosystem, the brand and to the developing rosters as well. Uh, developing those relationships gives us artists we can work with on the live side. We can pair up on collaborations, offer some of our developing artists as tour support. So it's interesting because sometimes in the Monster Cat community, I see people complain. They're like, they stop signing little guys. They're only working with big artists. And the answer to that is that it's it's sometimes we go through periods where it might seem like there's not a lot of developing artists that are new, uh, but that might be because we had signed them like in the years prior, and we're now like really focusing behind the scenes on how we're actually gonna you know aid them in their growth. So, Lenville, to answer your question, we will always con continue signing the next generation of talent. We will always commit to developing the next generation. And yet you will still see some of the largest artists in dance music work with Monster Guide and for us to work with them in some regard, because it only helps the developing artists at the same time. That's all for our show. 
you enjoyed this episode of Visionaries, please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcast. And leave us a review on Apple. It really helps with others finding the show, too. Special thanks to Prem Thadamkara and Sammy Daig for helping with this episode. If you want to join in on the discussion, feel free to join us on Twitter at Overcome every Monday and Wednesday. 